there was an Israel before October 7th and there is an Israel after October 7th and they are not the same place. Hello and welcome back to the Crime Podcast, Al Ragalachat. Now, our guest today was due to speak to us last week. Uh, we had the interview booked and we were due to record. Unfortunately, at the last minute, there was a change of plan and our guest was required for an interview elsewhere. And here's what happened. I was speaking to a hostage negotiator this morning. He made the comparison between the 50 hostages, hostages that Hamas has promised um, promised to release, as opposed to the 150 prisoners that are Palestinians that Israel has said that it will release. And he made the compa comparison between the numbers and the fact that does Israel not think that Palestinian lives are valued as highly as Israeli lives? That is an astonishing accusation. That's right. On this week's episode, we are going to be joined by Israeli government spokesman Elon Levy to teach us his Torah, Al-Regel Achat. Well, we're very excited to be joined by uh, probably one of the most recognizable faces in the Jewish world at the moment uh, and recognizable voices for the podcast. Elon Levy joining us on the current podcast. Elon, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, and with all of our guests this season, we'll start by asking you, can you teach us the Torah or your Torah? I'm here as Israel's government spokesman to tell you my approach to Hasbara and making the case for Israel. I think sometimes Hasbara can be very defensive. And if there's one lesson that I draw actually from David Ben-Gurion, the country's founding father, it's that the best defense is offense. David Ben-Gurion's, the core of his strategic doctrine was that Israel should always fight its wars on enemy territory. We are too small. We do not have enough strategic depth in order to lure the enemy into our territory and fight there. We always have to fight in enemy territory. And I think that is so important with the fight that we are having now in the wake of the October 7th massacre, when the justice of Israel's cause has never been clearer, that it is not Israel that owes answers or explanations to the world. It's not Israel that owes explanations to the world about the Shifa hospital. It is the World Health Organization. It is the Red Cross. It is the doctors at that hospital who knew Hamas was using it as a command center and covered it up, who owe explanations to the world, who have to explain why they said nothing, what they knew, why they were covering up for Hamas, while they continue to cover up for Hamas and cover up its exploitation of humanitarian facilities uh, and therefore, therefore nullifying their protected status. So I think it's always very important with Hasbara to remember that while we are fighting in the battlefield as well, we have to keep pushing the fight to the others who have taken the side of the enemy, put them on the back foot, demand accountability and explanations from them. I think if there is one thing that is core to the Hasbara effort, it's that when we know that we are convinced of the justice of our cause, we know that morality is on our side, we know the law is on our side, we know that justice and truth are on our side, it's others who demand explanations and we need to demand that they do Hasbara, not us. And, and you know, first of all, I think you do a wonderful job at doing that. Um, you've proven that time and again over the last uh, several weeks. And before we dive further into there, um, can we just get a sense of, you know, who who was Elon on October 6th? Uh, and then who did Elon become on October 7th, 8th and, and to where we are today? 
October 6th, I was a private citizen, uh, much like most people in this country. I wasn't connected to the government at all. I had worked previously as the international media advisor to President Herzog for the first two years of his presidency. But after that, I'd been taking a time out, uh, mostly translating books, including one book that was recently published uh, by Corin Yairettinger's uh, marvelous book on the uh, recent crisis of religious Zionism. And then October 7th happened, and everyone dropped everything and mobilized to support the war effort. The reservists, who had for a year been promising that they wouldn't do reserve duty, dropped everything at the drop of a hat and ran to defend the kibbutzim in the south. People started packing food and socks for soldiers at the front, going to distribute whatever they could to soldiers, to elderly people. And the whole country came together and realized that the Jewish wars that we had been fighting over the previous year had to pause, had to stop. We have to unite to face the common enemy that at that time was was actively massacring all of us. So uh, I wasn't connected to the government when, when this war started. My background is, as you can tell from my accent, I'm not originally Israeli. I was born in the UK to Israeli parents, grew up there, studied there, university, uh, my, my bachelor's and, and my master's at Oxford and Cambridge. I then made Aliyah nine years ago at the end of Operation Protective Edge, uh, the 2014 war with Gaza, so slightly coming full circle now. I did my military service, began a career in media, working for IBA News and then I-24 News, both as uh, a news anchor. Uh, as I said, then working for the president uh, for the past two years, the first two years of his presidency, and now find myself in this bizarre position where somehow I'm, I'm one of the um, most recognizable faces uh, and eyebrows of the state of Israel, <laughs> representing this country in what has now been the world's number one news story for the last 50 days. I've done nearly 200 television, radio interviews and podcasts, and we're putting up a fight. We're putting up a stiff fight. And I think the tide is changing. and People understand what Israel is up against, what it is facing, why we are fighting, why we have no choice but to fight and why we have no choice but to win. If we can then talk about those recognisable eyebrows um, and the <laughs> K. Burley size elephant in the room, um, you yes, know, if you'd, if you'd told me uh, <laughs> if you'd told me a few weeks ago that I'd be interviewed on Israeli television and they would be referring to me as having the most famous eyebrows in recent history, I don't know <laughs> what planet I would have assumed you dropped from. But uh, what are the more more bizarre twists of uh, recent times? <laughs> Indeed, and so I, I think all of our listeners are probably familiar with at least one of the. Um, bizarre questions uh, that you've been posed uh, in any number of, of these 200 interviews that you've done. Um, I guess sort of the, the question that, that we want to ask is, how do you remain level-headed and how, do, how do, do you, as a spokesperson for the Prime Minister's office, and how do we as Zionists, as Jews, as uh, you know, normal-minded individuals, hopefully, um, how do we take the fight to the enemy, as you uh, quoted Ben Gurion is saying, uh, and sort of highlight uh, exactly what it is that none of these things are new. You know, the, the our knowledge of, of things under hospitals and in uh, kindergartens, whatever, we, we've been talking about this for years and years. It seems that now everyone else is, is uh, waking up to it. How do you make sure that, you know, when you're faced with a question of you know, Israel doesn't value Palestinian lives because we're willing to... Uh, swap so many of them for us. Uh, how do you, you know, how, how do you make the, the fight make sense? 
Well, I think I've adopted the lesson that the international community has been calling on Israel uh, for years, and that is restraint. Uh, very difficult. You have to remain cool under pressure, especially when facing bizarre questions. And there have been bizarre questions. There was the uh, Sky News question where I was asked uh, whether the fact that Israel is releasing more violent criminals than we're getting our innocent hostages back means that we devalue Palestinian lives. Another Sky News interview where I was asked uh, about Yihya Sinwar releasing hostages despite Israel's bombardment of Gaza, and I had to explain it was because of the bombardment of Gaza. I had the BBC asking me after we released CCTV footage of those hostages being abducted into the Shifa hospital, whether we had CCTV footage of them receiving medical treatment. I've had Irish television insisting to me that for five weeks Hamas has been begging to give the hostages back, and it's Israel that's responding to pressure from the United States, not Hamas responding to Israel's military pressure. So a fair share of bizarre moments, and I have to say sometimes while I'm giving these interviews, I don't fully appreciate just how bizarre the questions <laughs> are, and maybe they deserve a much, a much stronger uh, a much stronger reaction. Uh, I think it's important always to be very proactive and confident in the justice of our cause. We know that we are not taking pot shots at hospitals for fun. We know that Hamas has spent the last 16 years embedding itself under schools, under mosques, under hospitals, under people's homes. And that evidence is now coming to light at an astonishing pace. We have seen the tunnel shafts under children's beds, the rockets stored under a girl's mattress, the RPGs in a baby's crib, the intercepted phone call of Islamic Jihad talking about transporting anti-tank missiles in a stroller, in a baby's pram. We have the mosque that was converted into a rocket factory, the uh, Cub Scout Center that was used to store rockets, the cables for booby traps and rockets that led straight into mosques and uh, clinics, and of course, all the evidence from under the Al-Shifa hospital, where uh, for months everyone treated Israel with ridicule at this idea that Hamas could have a compound underneath the hospital. Yes, the same Hamas that performed the October 7th massacre. Who could believe it? And we're exposing the evidence. You know, maybe they thought there was going to be a Wizard of Oz moment where we would pull back the curtain and say, ta-da, it took a few days. Uh, and we revealed that evidence. And it is important to put Hamas on the back foot. And the World Health Organization and the Red Cross and the other organizations that have continued to do PSYOPs for Hamas. I really mean it when I say these organizations have been fully recruited into doing propaganda for Hamas. I'll give you two examples that you won't believe. You want to hear them? Yeah. Of course. Go for it. One Red Cross official uh, put out a tweet saying, none of these things in Gaza were spared. And then a list of emojis, an emoji of a hospital, not spared. An emoji of a school, not spared. An emoji of a mosque, not spared. Down the list, I kid you not, an emoji of a synagogue, we actually had a Red Cross official two weeks ago accusing Israel of targeting synagogues in Gaza. Of course, the only synagogues now are the pop-up minyanim of the soldiers who are davening in Gaza. I'll give you another example. The World Health Organization. For years, uh, the Palestinians have been saying Gaza is an open-air prison. They've shifted the narrative now to claim that before the Israeli ground offensive, Gaza was heaven on earth. The World Health Organization put out a video showing a cartoon of Gaza before the war. And next to the towers of Gaza, I kid you not, are giant teddy bears. Giant skyscraper-shaped 
teddy bears. And in the next frame, this is an official video from the World Health Organization, you see the teddy bears knocked sideways as Israeli jets fly overhead and bomb the giant teddy bears in Gaza. So that's what I mean when I say these international institutions have not only been turning a blind eye to Hamas, they've been going out of their way to support the Palestinian nationalist narrative, to support the narrative fueling Hamas's war effort, and to delegitimize Israel's attempts to defend itself. And we have to remind everyone, everyone who's calling for a ceasefire, and I go on the offensive, when I say everyone who is taking part in those protests, in London, in Paris, in New York, calling for a ceasefire, calling for us to abandon our hostages in Gaza, calling on us to leave Hamas in power, is a rape apologist. Did you have Stand anyone take the- you up on your offer? I, I don't know if anyone saw this, Elon offered to give a donation to UNRWA, uh, to anyone that stood at one of these marches with a sign condemning uh, what Hamas did, uh, and you offered, did anyone take you up on that? Yes. I had one person take me up on that offer that I made on British radio, offering anyone who goes to a pro-Palestinian protest with a sign saying, I condemn Hamas for raping Israeli women and girls. I'll donate £10 to UNRWA or any charity of their choice. A few days later, I get a a DM in uh, my Twitter from a Twitter handle called at Chabad Lubavitch. (laughs) 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 And it was a Lubavitcher Jew from New York who had safely stood at a a distance from a pro-Palestinian protest, but you could see the flags in the distance holding a little A4 sign uh, with that condemnation. And I was so impressed with his courage that, of course, I didn't donate to UNRWA. He didn't want me to donate to the uh, fake Palestinian refugee agency. He asked me uh, to donate instead to a Jewish charity in New York that combats poverty. And I was very happy to donate high dollars uh, to salute him for his courage. But unfortunately, no, he was the only person and uh, no one else has tried to correct the record. But really, anyone... uh, Serious point. Anyone who is going on these protests and telling Israel that we have no right to defend ourselves against the atrocities of October 7th, that we should stop fighting and leave hostages, including children in Gaza, that we should leave Hamas in power, free to reoffend when it tells us it wants to do another October 7th massacre, is an apologist for the atrocities of October 7th, even if they don't explicitly deny it, even if they're not explicitly glorifying it. And we've seen that at these protests. Just trying to get a little bit... Uh, deeper and trying to understand the background of this. And one of the, th- I mean, thinking a lot, I don't know if it's weather because obviously all of, all of us here are originally English. So our eyes or our attention naturally goes towards the British kind of media platform, Sky News, BBC, etc. So obviously a lot of our social media feeds and discussions have been focused on kind of Sky News, Cape Early over the last couple of days, but trying to get, get beneath, do you think it's a case of you know, asking a question like she did, is it literally just not understanding, not actually having the knowledge to know the background of what prisoner swaps are in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? Is it, you know, just not knowing about it? Or is it actually an underlying sense of, no, Israel could never possibly do anything right, the Jews could never do anything right? What what sits underneath a question like that? That's a very good question. Uh, I really don't know. Uh, Mrs. Burley tried to explain the situation afterwards, saying that uh, it is her job as a journalist to present 
uh, interviewees with challenging controversial issues and get their opinions and she's of course completely right i think it's also the media's job to filter some of the nonsense out uh, and get down to the serious points i think if uh, she were serious about this claim that the lopsided ratio means that israel doesn't care about palestinian lives then if you compare it to the gilad shalit deal when we released a thousand palestinian prisoners for one soldier it would mean that our view of palestinian lives has improved considerably uh, but of course that's not the approach they take I think there is a serious problem that no matter what we do, it can always be spun against us and twisted against us by people who don't want to believe that Israel might actually be right for once. Uh, I think you see this, by the way, the phenomenon is linked to the tearing down of the hostage posters around the world. When you tear down those posters, you are denying the Jews and Israeli hostages, their humanity. And you do that because we operate in a reality in which the victim is always right. And therefore, Israel can't possibly be the victim because that would mean that it is right. And in order to deny it its victim status, you have to deny it its humanity. I'll give you one example. Um, a few weeks ago, we announced while we were trying to evacuate northern Gaza to get the Palestinians out of harm's way because we don't want them to be hurt. We want to go after the monsters who perpetrated the October 7th massacre. And Hamas was holding many Palestinians hostage as human shields. It wasn't letting them out. And Israel announced a phone number that they could call to tell the army where they were being held as human shields so we could do our best to try to get them out of harm's way. No army in history has ever opened what I called on Channel 4 a human shield hotline in order to try to, try to evacuate civilians on the enemy side from harm's way. I go on Channel 4, I explain this, and Matt Fry... Uh, laughs with incredulity and immediately tries to take it in the direction of, well, how are they supposed to contact you when you've shut down telecommunications uh, in Gaza? Pause that thought. We've all seen the images of the civilians standing around the hostages being released from Gaza, charging, uh, uh, taking pictures on their phones a month and a half after the UN said that Gaza had run out of electricity. Let's put that thought to one side. Uh, and somehow this extraordinary step that Israel has taken, that no army in the history of warfare has ever taken to protect civilians, somehow spun against us that, uh, that that it's insincere, that we're not really trying to make these efforts because, you know, at the bottom, uh, bottom line, we all know Israelis don't really care about Palestinian civilians. I think it's tragic and we're putting up a fight. We're putting up a fight trying to remind everyone the extraordinary lengths that Israel is going to. And, you know, when Israeli soldiers are having RPGs fired at them by Hamas, while we're securing safe passage for Palestinian civilians to leave Gaza, we don't need to take lectures from any countries that safely bombed ISIS from a distance instead of having their own boots on the ground protecting Iraqi civilians trying to flee uh, Mosul while, uh, while Islamic uh, State was trying to fire rockets at them. So it's always important to put things in context that way. My next question then is, is you know, as we've really complimented your level-headedness and... and uh, uh, you know just how how wonderful masterfully you've you've dealt with these interviewers and and uh maintained sort of this steadfastness during uh, during this time it must be incredibly difficult going day to day to day whether it's professionally in an interview or on social media being hounded um by whomever it is wherever they are in the world essentially calling you a liar and that Israel is this demon state and Israel is can do no right and the Jews are effectively not human. We don't deserve to be the victim even. 
um, what is it that keeps you going? What What's the the thing that, you know, the, the is, is it a quote? Is it a, an idea? What is it that goes through your head that helps you get up in the morning, you know, put on your suit and tie and continue fighting the good fight? We're in a war and we have no choice but to win. And we're all pulling our own weight and doing whatever we can. I can say that I've actually received far more messages of support and encouragement than I have death threats. And this is something that really shocked me. Uh, the nasty messages come through, but honestly, I am not able to get on top of all the lovely messages through my Instagram and Twitter and LinkedIn and all the other platforms of people who are reaching out to say, we're standing with you. We want to give you encouragement and support. And so that knowledge that um, that I'm making a difference, at least in giving uh, a morale boost to to Israelis, to Jews around the world, that puts a smile on my face, that um, uh, puts a spring in my step and helps me go forward because otherwise this can be a very lonely and perilous moment to be a Jew at the moment. But I really feel embraced uh, by by a lot of love and and that really keeps me going and uh, and always puts a smile on my face, even if I'm not able to reply to everyone. Right, amazing. And I, mean, I, I could definitely say, certainly for the the British Olim in our part of Modi, and there's definitely a, a big feeling of uh, nachas to have one of our own uh, <laughs> representing us so well at the moment. And if and if all I do this war is bring nachas to the British Olim community, I've done my job. <laughs> oh, uh, so I, I guess a, a final question. I mean, speaking, you talked about you know we're at war. Everyone has their jobs to do. For everyone listening around the world, what do you think? I mean. Obviously, you have have your job to do, which is reaching millions of people around the world um, through the media. But just kind of people, Jewish communities around the world, what do you think they should be doing? Obviously, I think everyone's also looking at the war in different phases. Where we're at today is very different to where we were a week ago. Where we were a week ago was very different to where we were five weeks ago. Where where things are at now, what do you think you sort of world Jewry should be doing um, for their role in this war? This is going to be a long and grueling fight, a long and grueling fight, not just for the duration of this war, but the effects of it afterwards. There was an Israel before October 7th, and there is an Israel after October 7th, and they are not the same place. The massacre is a trauma that is going to define everything about Israel and the Israeli experience going forth. And also affecting diaspora Jewry. What we are seeing now is really, uh, to quote a, a fantastic article by David Hazoni in the Sapir Journal, which I recommend everyone read, a global war against the Jews um, that requires us to close ranks and work together and rethink some very basic strategies. Now, as for Israel, anyone who is able to contribute to the public diplomacy effort by being active on social media, writing columns, putting themselves forward for TV appearances, amazing. That is welcome. The pro-Palestinian gang are actively intimidating people from speaking up in favor of Israel and anyone who can stick their neck out above the parapet and make the case for Israel, that voice has to be heard. Uh, there is a lot to be said about financial support as well from the diaspora. Um, Israel is going to need a lot of help the kibbutzim that were completely destroyed on October 7th, leaving those families with nothing, not even homes, in many cases, not even family members. Zaka, the emergency services, went through, I think, four years of equipment in three days. That's how brutal the onslaught was. And I know that a lot of uh, philanthropic organizations are thinking about how to shift their philanthropy for Israel after this war. I'm not joking when I say this country is going to need a lot of therapy. 
This country is going, everyone in this country is going to need a lot of emotional and psychological support because people have seen things. People have endured things that no one should ever have to endure. And that is ongoing. That is a trauma that is ongoing for the families of people who are missing, for the families of people uh, who have been killed, for the families of hostages. This is going to be a life-changing trauma. And so there does need to be some serious thinking about actually how maybe philanthropic priorities change uh, the day after this war so that Israel can emerge as a healthier country. I think after the year that we've been through, everyone understands now how much we need each other, how much we love each other how much we're all in the same boat together in this country and with the Jews around the world. And we need to start thinking about how we strengthen that sense of unity so that we can feel it during times of peace and, and not only during times of war. Well, Ilan Levy, thank you so much for joining us. Um, you know, and also thank you for all the work you're doing. Um, <laughs> we're very, very grateful, very proud, not just because you're British, but because uh, we have <laughs> the likes of you representing all of us uh, during such a difficult time. Uh, and so thank you for joining us on the current that's podcast. Very kind. I'm Israel Chai. Thank you. Well, that's all we have time for for this episode of the Koran Podcast. Elon mentioned there that he translated the recently released Freyd by Israeli journalist Yair Ettinger that looks at the disputes unraveling religious Zionists. And you can find that available for purchase now at koranpub.com. And don't forget that if you use discount code PODCAST at checkout, you can receive a 10% discount off that and your whole order at the same time. Now, if you'd like to contact us, you can reach us through all the usual socials at Koran Publishers or through email podcast at koranpub.com. Until next time, this has been the Corin Podcast, Al Regal Achat.